Good evening. Good evening, Facebook. Good evening, YouTube. Hallelujah. All right, make sure my timer is on. I am so happy to be here this evening. I enjoy every opportunity I have to stand before you guys to share the word of God, to share what God has been saying to me and how he's been moving in my life. Uh, so right now, let's have a quick prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord. We love you. We thank you for the opportunity to stand before your people, Lord. We thank you that you've given me an opportunity that I would be pleasing in your sight, that the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so for my subject today or, or for my the title of the message, for me, it is always the greatest story ever told. So this is actually a continuation of a series. Because anytime I get to open the word of God, it is indeed the greatest story ever told. Now, I don't know if anybody saw the bumper for Facebook or not today. But if you didn't, it kind of went like this. Can the love of God affect our earthly relationships, even though God, even though the God kind of love seems to set an impossible standard? Then it says, we'll find out tonight, or we'll find out what love's got to do with it tonight. So the title of this message is, what's love got to do with it? Because I got to have a title, right? It helps when I file all of my stuff so then I can find it for future references. So that's how we do it. We're going to be in the book of 1 John tonight. And basic uh, information about 1 John. Obviously, it is an epistle. It was written about uh, 90 AD. It was written, the author is un, not unknown, but unstated. By the way it's written, by this content, we are confident that the writer of 1 John is actually John the Apostle. He wrote the book as a, a circular letter to the churches in the area of Ephesus. And also, it is it lacks dedication and it lacks salutation, as I said. And it is to give assurance of eternal life and to refute false doctrine and false teachers. We're going to start out in... It's easier to start at the beginning of 4, but we're going to be in 3.24, the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. Now, he who keeps the, his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God because many false prophets have gone into the world. Now, the word that they use for spirits actually can be used as either a godly spirit or a demonic spirit. So we're told that we are to test the spirits. So whatever we're hearing, we're supposed to take our time, we're supposed to dig into what is being said, use the plane or use the... Um, level of the word so we can tell whether it is correct or not. So always test the spirits. 
when we see the word try, or I'm sorry, the word test. Uh, in the New King James, the word test is rendered dokismo, and it means to put to the test for the purpose of approving and finding that the person put to the test meets the specifications laid down to put one's approval upon them. So again, when we're talking about false teachers, we want to put whatever they're saying to the level that we should be doing. Thank you. Any better? Ms. Ethel's giving me little uh, reminders and such. Okay, from the Weiss word study in the Greek New Testament from chapter 4. Now, what is involved in this statement? Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. The name Jesus in the English form uh, of the Greek, Lesus, and this is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves. Christ is from Christos, the anointed one, uh, the word is come and is the perfect tense of the Greek word. And we're going to hear a whole lot about the perfect tense of the Greek word today because I tend to find out that I'm like a church nerd. Okay, church nerds or gym rats, or whatever you want to call it. I want to know what's going on, how it's going on. But not just because I want to know stuff, but because what I found when you get into the word of God, when you get into tenses, when you get in to the original, what you find out is what is being said is dependable and it's harder to take stuff out of context. Uh, from the foregoing, it follows that the statement speaks of the God of the Old Testament who in the person of his son became incarnate in the flesh without sin died on the cross to satisfy satisfy the just demands of his law, which man broke and raised himself from the dead in the body in which he died to become the living savior of the sinner who places his faith in him in view of what he did for him on Calvary's cross. The person who teaches what John says is actuated by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the teacher who does not agree with the doctrine, with that doctrine is not of God. He is actuated by the spirit of Antichrist who denies and is against all that the Bible teaches regarding the person and works of the Lord Jesus. This is modernism. From 1 John 4, 4, you are of God, little children. And we have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The intensive use of the personal pronoun gives us, for you, little born ones, in contradistinction to anti-Christian teachers. You are of God. John states that the saints states to the, states that the saints to whom he is writing have overcome these false teachers. The verb is in the perfect tense, speaking of a past completed victory and a present state of being a conqueror. In other words, when it says that you have overcome the world, it means in the past we have overcome the world, but presently we are still victorious because of what happened in the past. 
uh, this is the saint, this is the saints of whom John refers were not taken in by the heresies of false teachers and were in a settled state of victory over them. They were confirmed in their attitude against heresy and had their eyes wide open to its source of nature, source and nature. From John 4, 5, and 6. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. When we look at today, how many times do we hear people say stuff and we just kind of don't get it? We don't understand what it is that people are saying or why they're saying what they're saying. But when we look around, people are going, yeah, that's right. You ever wonder why that is? It's because we're not of the world. The world gets theirs. They understand what's being said. But for us, sometimes we, we have a hard time understanding what in the world they're actually saying. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. And, who, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Conversely, when we hear godly things, we understand them as godly things. We understand that the word of God is the truth. We understand when we hear it that this is the way in which we ought to go. The world looks at us and it goes, no, no, no. From John 4, 7. I'm sorry, from John 4, 7. I'm sorry. Beloved, let us... That is honor. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not know God, for he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, once again, if we're breaking down the Greek, the word for beloved, agape toy, which is a form of the word agape, divinely loved ones. Those are the ones loved by God. Once again, we're talking about believers because remember, this is an epistle and epistles are written to believers. So when people say, you know, we're supposed to love the brethren, that means we love all men. Well, we love everybody, but when we're talking about something like this, we're talking about loving fellow believers. The love which the children of God should love one another is the agape love which God is in his nature. The love is produced by the Holy Spirit and is in the heart of a yielded saint. The love that is seen in action at the cross. The exhortation in the present subjective, subjunctive, which speaks of a continuous action, the translation reads, let us be habitually loving one another. The words one another are a reciprocal pronoun in the Greek text. There should be reciprocity in this exercise of love. Everyone who is habitually or who habitually loves is born of God. Is born is perfect tense in the Greek. Literally has been begotten with the present result that the person is a child of God. The new birth is a permanent thing. A child of God remains a child of God forever. 
The one who is not habitually loving knoweth not God. Knoweth is in the aorist tense in the Greek text. Literally, do not know God. Vincent says he never knew. Smith said, translates it as did not get to know God. As to the statement, God is love, we would suggest that that simply is not true. Now, I have to think about that for a second because I went over and over and over again and we always say, God is love, right? Okay. The word God has the article. The word love does not, which construction in the Greek means that the two words are not in, interchangeable. The absence of the article emphasizes the nature, essence, character, the translation should be read, God as to his nature is love. That is, God is a loving God. It is his nature to be loving. God is love. God is love. Love is God. Have you heard that said before? It's kind of one of those metaphysical kind of things. Don't believe the hype. God as to his nature is love. His very essence is love, or to be loving. Now, it's interesting because when I was doing the motorcycle job, I overheard a nun talking to another one of the students. Now, when you had the motorcycle class, one of the things that was kind of cool because it became like a bucket list thing for people. So we get all kind of people that would show up and want to learn how to ride a motorcycle. So this one particular time, we had a nun in our class which I thought was kind of cool. So I happened to overlook the nun. So we had this nun, and I overheard the nun say to another late, another person in the class, she said, you know that God of the Old Testament is a mean God. Mm-hmm. And I went, <gasps> I almost had to pull like a Fred Sanford. Elizabeth, I'm coming, this is the big one. Because I really was shocked to hear a nun say that. But when someone says something like that, clearly they don't know the God we serve. They don't know the God whose essence is love. Now, the whole idea is because of his essence and because of who he is, he has to be righteous. But in spite of all that we may think, God is love. I have a translation from Weist from John 4, 8. Divinely one, divinely loved ones. Let us be habitually having one another, loving one another, because this aforementioned love is out of God as a source. And everyone who is habitually loving out of God has been born with the present result that he is regenerated and knows God in an experiential way. The one who has not habitually loving has not come to know God because God as to his nature is love. Now the word we're using and we'll use several times today, knowing, that is gnoskos, which means experiential love or knowledge. We have knowledge by experience as opposed to oida and I believe pastor is that revelation knowledge. Thank you, thank you D. So when you hear me read these verses and I say, no, all of them are experiential knowledge, okay? From John, 1 John 4, 9. 
In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. Or in other words, towards us means in our case, that God has sent apostello, the word for sent, the word which we get apostle from, has sent on a commission as an envoy, his only begotten, single of its kind only, son, into the world that we might live through him. 410, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, as I was doing the preparation for this and the reading, and it's almost like with Festus and King Agrippa when Paul's before him and Paul's talking to Agrippa and Festus looks at him and says, Paul, all this learning has made you mad. All this study is like kind of mess with me. Not that it's running together, but it's like page after page after page after page. But some of the things that I'm reading, I just can't put in my own words better than what I've read. So that's why if you hear me reading stuff, I've sat there and said, hmm, let me, no, I can't do it that good. So I'll just go ahead and read it. So please bear with me, okay? Okay, once again from Weist. In the expression, herein is love, the definite article appears before the word love, not at any kind, not any kind of love, but the particular love that inheres in God's nature, divine love. We loved is in perfect tense. The human race has not loved God with the present result that it does not possess any love for him. He loved is the constitutive error giving a panoramic view of God's love for the human race. God has always loved sinners. Sent is also aorist, making it the incarnation as a historical event. Propitiation, hilosma, the English word propitiate means to appease and to render favorable. Now that comes from the pagan world and what it meant in the pagan world was if you were pagan and you had a pagan god, you would bring things to appease your pagan god. This offering, that offering, and so on and so forth. But the god of Christianity needs no gift to appease his wrath and to make him favorable towards the human race. Divine love springs spontaneously from his heart. His wrath against sin cannot be placated by works. So nothing we can do, even when we had the whole idea of offerings and sacrifices and everything else, we could never satisfy what we owed God. All we were doing was pointing towards the coming of Christ. Only, only the infliction of the penalty of sin, death, will satisfy the just demands of his holy law, which the human race violated, maintain his government, and provide the proper basis for his bestowal of mercy, namely, divine justice satisfied. Now, again, when we look at that, it could only be Christ who did it. 
God would not be satisfied with anything else. And for him to be the God he is, his laws have to be satisfied. And glory to God that he sent Christ to do what he did. This is Hillismas, that sacrifice which fully sacrifices or satisfies the demands of the broken law. It is our Lord's death on Calvary's cross. Thus, this pagan word accrued to itself a new meaning, and it enters the doctrinal atmosphere of the New Testament. In the translation of this, in this love, not that we loved God, with the present result that we possess love for him, but that he himself loved us and sent his son a satisfaction concerning of our sins. From John, 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us by sending his son to die and to save us, we ought to love one another. And that is sacrificial love. I've got John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Clearly that is sacrificial love. When I talk to our guys, one of the things I tell them is that as guys, we're supposed to have love for our wives, like the love that Christ had for the church. And I always hear from guys, the guys say, well, yeah, I got it, I got it. Christ died for the church, I would die for my wife. And my next question always is, okay, but how many opportunities do you have to die for your wife? How about we ask this question? Are you willing to die to yourself daily for your wife? Now, that's a bigger question. So, just like we're talking about this sacrificial love, as believers, we're supposed to be known by our love for, for one another. So how willing are we to die for or die to ourselves for our fellow Christians daily? That's a big question. From 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. For 13, by this we know, once again, gnosko, by experience, that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit, has given, has given, has given is in the perfect tense, the spirit has, was given to the saints as a permanent gift. Fourteen, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior to the world. Once again, I told you we were going to do a lot of perfect tense. Again, the verb seen to steadfastly and deliberately contemplate is in the perfect tense. Speaking of the past complete action with its present existing results. In other words, it wasn't just a glimpse. It denotes a process, one that yielded an assured result. The result is that the Son is the Savior of the world. Now, it's interesting when you talk about the Savior of the world thing, because in the Roman world of the time, 
the Caesar was always called Savior of the world. So it's interesting that John took this phrase that they used as Savior of the world, meaning Caesar, and put it in its correct place and said that Christ is indeed the Savior of this world, which could be considered to be heresy in the Roman Empire, which was one of the reasons why the Jews kept saying, this guy keeps telling that he's king. Well, it wasn't him saying, it was that others were saying that he was the Savior of the world. Uh, John 4.42, not First John, plain old John. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, that's from Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman, where he shows up. The woman, he talks to the woman. The woman gets so enthused. The woman understands who he is. She runs into the entire town. She starts telling everybody, every, this is a man who can tell me everything that I've ever done in my life. Come and see. Could it be he is the Christ? So everybody comes out and they start coming to see Jesus and they start talking to him and they start hearing his word. And the guys say, okay, we heard what you said, that he was the Christ. But now we have experientially found out through his words that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Back in John 4, 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Confess is the Greek word homo legeo, to speak the same thing that another speaks. Thus, to agree with someone and to <clears throat> and to a certain proposition. Am I at it again? I'm sorry to bother you. That's okay. It's scraped on your suit, so that's what that scratch is coming from. Okay. There you go. All right. Maybe I should have something in my hand and be easy to do that, right? No, 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 no. That would drive me too crazy. I'm sorry. Okay. Thus uh, agree with someone as to a certain proposition. The word, therefore, implies a statement with which one is in agreement. That statement is formulated by someone else. Here, the doctrine concerning our Lord. The verb is in aorist tense, making the act of the confession a definite one. And the classification constitutive errors, speaking of the fact that the confession is a lifetime confession and represents a sustained attitude of the heart. The confession is that Jesus is the Son of God, thus God the Son, the very God of very God. This confession is of the deity of Christ, implies surrender, obedience, also not merely lip service. Okay, the language we've been looking at in First John isn't church's usual language. You know what I mean by that? You know how church folk are. They talk church language. But when we read First John, this isn't church's usual type language. This is a language where it goes beyond. 
It's all in church language. It's language that is a lifestyle. Have you ever heard someone quote Romans 10.9 before in that kind of namby-pamby voice? You know what I mean? That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you heard that before? Now, people say it, but are they really sold out when they're saying it, when they when they understand what, in actuality, we're talking about? This confession is a certainty. This confession is a lifelong responsibility. This is something that follows you for the rest of your life. This is not fire insurance. You know how people want fire insurance? I just don't want to go to hell. And as long as I don't have to go to hell, I'm good. That's not what we're talking here. We are not talking milk toast here. We're talking way of life. From John, first John 4.16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Now that talks about the sharing of a being. God in us, us in God. It's a wonderful way to continue a life. From 17, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. The idea of us having boldness when it comes to what we are called to do as the body of Christ. There's no greater time than right now for us to have boldness in what we are certain of. Because the world will look at us, the world will say, well, this is what you are. We have to be ready to give an explanation of what we believe, why we believe it, and who we believe in. 418 and 19. There is no fear. The fear spoken of here is godly, is not godly fear, like you would find in 1 Peter 117 or Hebrews 1228. But the fear of a slave to a master or a criminal before a judge. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. The Greek word for torment is kaleos. Correction, punishment, or penalty. But he who fears has not been made perfect. The word perfect, teleo, complete, or brought into its fullness in love. So when we are where we are supposed to be positioned in Christ... Perfect fear or perfect love casts out all fear. When we do what we are called to do, we are not worried about what the world has to say about us, how the world looks at us, what the world estimates about us, anything else. We are to be bold in doing our work. We love him because he first loved us. As for us, let us be constantly loving 
because he himself first loved us. From John, 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I constantly love God and he hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not constantly love his brother, whom he has seen with discernment, he's looked upon his brother, and, and with discernment, he, he's looked and he's understood who he is. How can he love God whom he has not seen? Or in other words, discern. How can we how can he love God who he has not seen with discernment? And this commandment we have for him from him that he who is constantly loving God must constantly love his brother. So this is the thing when we look at who we are in Christ. It's not an on and off thing. It's a habitual thing. It's a thing that we do by our very essence. Because what is happening is we're looking at bringing about that same essence of love that God the Father has. So when we look at the application for today, the, the word is, we can do it. We can have that kind of God love, God the Father love, that love that is truly the nature of God. From John 4.19, Fourteen nineteen. I'm sorry, Daryl. Fourteen nine. Yes, I'm sorry. A little bit dyslexic, just slightly. Jesus said to him, "Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? The love nature." that the Father possesses is exhibited in the Son. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Paul in this, in this verse says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So if we see the nature that Christ has, Paul's saying, imitate me, follow me as I imitate Christ. What we're supposed to be doing also is imitating Christ. From Acts 16, 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison door open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke, spoke the word of the Lord to him, and all his house 
and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. So what brought on this miracle? Was it that Paul and Silas were singing? Or was it the love that was a part of who they were brought about God's miraculous power? Paul and Silas were living in love. And as a part of the love, when the doors flew open, instead of them jumping up and saying, favor, we are out of here. <laughs> now that might have been me. We are out of here. Everybody's sitting there like nothing happened. All the chains are loosed. All the doors are open. They're just sitting there. Why? Because there's someone to be saved. There's some work of God to be done in that place. And all of a sudden, they say, you know what? Because at our very essence is love, we're going to minister to the jailer. You know, in the flesh, we expect to be loved for what we do, not who we are. Today, we try to convince people we care by what we do. Our loving nature is who we are, not what we do. So if we're going to have that guy kind of love, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at doing God's work, but that coming from love and that not coming from something that we do so we get brownie points or Christian points or whatever it is. We do it because that's who we are. That is what is deep inside of us. God the Father, God the Father's nature is love. Christ told Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Because of Christ's relationship with us, we are to take on his nature. Although we start out with that sin nature, as believers, we can attain the nature of love. We can develop that nature. And I've got this quick quote God loves you as if you were the only one to love. That's from Augustine. One other. It's called the contagion of love. From the early Latin writer Tertullian of Carthage. He declared that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments they gave him because he could find a counterpoint for every argument they would present. But they demonstrated something I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way they loved each other. So First John has told us that is how we're known, by the way we love one another. So as we continue to develop that God kind of love by nature. Let's show this dying world 
by the way we treat one another, fellow believers, by the love that we exercise with one another. That we would give God the glory in all that we are and all that we do. Father, we just thank you and glorify you that you have been right here in the midst as we have spoken. Lord, we ask that we would develop your kind of love, that it will become our nature in all that we do and all that we are, that others would see that love nature in us, that it would make a way for us to minister to others, that it would be winsome, that it would attract others. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.